I want you to imagine a time. Imagine a time before. Before there were Republicans. Before there were Democrats. Imagine a time before the United States Constitution. Before the First and Second Amendments. Imagine a time when our notion of religious freedom didn't exist. Imagine a time when Rome was the only game in town. Rome was the only game in the Western world. Rome was founded as a republic in 509 BC and became an empire in 27 BC under the leadership of Caesar Augustus. And it was during Caesar Augustus's reign that a Jewish baby was born in Judea in a backwater town called Bethlehem whose fame would one day outshine the fame of that first Roman emperor and whose fame would outshine the fame of every single Roman emperor who followed. That baby would grow into a young man who would stand up to the injustice of the empire as well as the hypocrisy of the temple establishment. He would introduce the world to the radical idea that people should love their neighbors as well as their enemies. That people should turn their other cheek when attacked. And that people should forgive everyone who's wronged them. Toward the end of his life, he would be betrayed by a friend and condemned by his own people and murdered by his rulers. And yet, today, he is worshipped by most of the people in the world. Many years ago, not long after Jesus' death, his followers gathered at sunrise on the first day of the week, and they sang songs to him. And they told stories about him. Maybe they even read something that they'd received or, or heard about from another one of his followers. And together, they would confirm their commitment to this radical new way of life. Their commitments to chastity and fidelity and to honor and honesty and hard work. And in those gatherings, which, which took place under trees or in courtyards or in homes or by the water's edge, in those gatherings, there were Jews and Gentiles. There were men and women there were slaves and owners. There were young people and older people. There were farmers and soldiers. And unlike the pagan majority that surrounded them, the faithful believed that God was not an idol hewn out of stone, but was a spirit. It was an integral part of the true Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Unlike the pagan majority, they believed that every person was valuable not just those people deemed valuable by the ruling classes. Unlike the pagan majority, they did not believe that animal sacrifice was valid or necessary. And like their Lord, they were also betrayed by friends, condemned by the temple and persecuted by the empire. But their movement, the movement in which they were involved, went viral and it went so viral that we're still telling their story. 
2,000 years later as we work on our own story. Because one day, the faith of the followers of Jesus in our time, in our day, one day that'll just be a story too. It'll be a story that our descendants tell. And I wonder what story will be told about us. See, it's down to us to be the keepers of the faith of our generation for the American Christians in our day and age. And with that, I welcome you to the third and final installment of our series, Tough as Nails. Won't you pray with me? And then we'll dig into today's message. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning. Father, you are the creator of the world and everything in it. Father, you are sovereign over your world that you've created. Father, you're merciful, you're gracious, and Father, you are perfect and pure. We thank you for this time together. We thank you for calling us to you, and we ask that you would open our hearts and minds today so that we can understand you better and draw closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so as we wrap up this morning, as we wrap up this sermon series, we're going to be looking at a narrative. It's an intriguing narrative, and it comes to us from the book of Acts. It's a narrative that will remind us of the way that our faith, we call it Christianity oftentimes, a faith in Jesus, our faith once inspired the lost people that surrounded the believers. And it's a faith that will hopefully motivate us to similarly inspire the lost in our vicinity as well. If you have your Bible with you, and you could use a book or an app or a phone or a tablet, doesn't matter which, you can follow along in Acts chapter 3 a little bit and then mostly Acts chapter 4. So as we get going, let me give you a little bit of background about the book of Acts. Now, start off by remembering this. The Bible isn't really just a book. We think of it as a book, we carry it around as a book, it's not really just a book. Rather, the Bible is a collection of different kinds of writings. There are legal writings, there are songs, there are self-help ideas in a way, there are stories. It's, it's more like a library than it is like a book. Now, the book we refer to as Acts, A-C-T-S, just so you don't think I'm saying A-X-E, but A-C-T-S, was named the Acts of the Apostles sometime in the second century. Now, the book of Acts was written by Luke, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And in fact, the book of Acts is the second part of the Gospel of Luke, or the second volume of the Gospel of Luke. It was all written as one work, and it was just separated when they were sort of separating out the Bible books to make it easier to follow through them. And the book of Acts describes the growth and spread of the early Jesus movement. So it's the early church history book. Today's narrative takes place about two months, only two months after Jesus was crucified. And it describes an incident involving the Apostle Paul, who was Luke's, the author's, traveling companion. The Apostle Paul planted churches, the first churches, the first gatherings in Greek and Roman cities all around the Mediterranean Rim, and those churches made inroads into a culture that had previously been incredibly anti-Jesus, anti-Christian, and practiced and promoted anti-Christian mores and values and practices. Now, Luke was an eyewitness to all the things that he would write here. 
So here's what happened. Immediately following Jesus' resurrection and ascension, when he went up to heaven, the movement of his followers began to spread throughout Jerusalem. And then it began to spread into the surrounding regions. And before long, Jesus' followers, who were known as apostles, became the spokesmen for the new movement, known then as the way. They called it the way. It actually wouldn't be referred to in large part as Christianity for quite some time. It took a while. So they called them the followers of the way. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. We're going to talk about that. Well, that's why they called it the way. Now, in this particular incident, which begins in Acts chapter 3, two of Jesus' disciples, you've heard their names before, Peter and John, went to the temple to pray. So we go to Acts chapter 3, verse 1. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. Verse 2, now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple, to the temple gate called Beautiful where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. Okay, so I want you to picture it. So here's a picture of the temple. Now, if you see at the bottom of the screen, there's sort of a uh, a portico with some columns there. That is called the beautiful gate. Okay, so that's the beautiful gate. That's the gate that leads into the temple courts. Now, John and Peter went up the stairs at that beautiful gate to go pray at the temple, And as they walked up the stairs, they passed this man. They passed this man who had been lame since birth. He couldn't walk since birth. And whose family had been bringing him there every single day. His his family would bring him there, throw him in the back of the SUV, walk him up, set him up on the steps, and he could beg for money. Now, of course, he'd been there for so long that most of the locals knew exactly who he was. They came to the temple every day. They saw the guy every day. Most of them knew who he was. Well, when Peter and John walked by him, he asked them for money, as beggars are wont to do. And Peter and John did what we often do. I'm so sorry, I have no change on me. That's what they did. That's exactly what they did. They said, we can't give you any gold or any silver. But instead, here's what they did. They healed him. So we go to verse 7. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly, the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Now, when all the people saw him walking and praising God, of course, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit at the temple gate called Beautiful, that we just saw, and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Well, it was a miracle. They healed him. He could walk, first time in his life, and word of the miracle spread. And before long, a crowd had gathered. And so Peter seized the opportunity to tell the crowd gathered in the Jewish temple about Jesus. Now, as you might well imagine, Peter's speech didn't play very well with the religious leaders, which brings us to Acts chapter 4, verse 1. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So what happened? Well, the guard seized Peter and John. And because it was evening, they threw him in jail until the next day. Now, before I go on, I I want us to take note of the 
the power of the gospel message in this next verse that we're about to read. This is verse 4. But many who heard the message believed. That's all it took. They were there. They were preaching. They presented the gospel message, and many believed. So the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. That's an incredible result right there. So back to where we were. It's probable that the same people who arrested Peter and John were the people who had just a couple months before arrested, tried, beaten, and crucified Jesus. Peter and John were probably also thrown into the same cell that they held Jesus in. So think about that. Two months later, similar situation, same arresting people, same cell. So, verse 5, the next day, the rulers, the elders and teachers of the law, met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and others of the high priest's family. Now, we've talked about this before, but as a quick reminder, the temple leaders tended to be all related. It was a very powerful position, and so once you got that power in your family, you didn't let it go from your family. You gave it to your son, and then to his son, or to your son-in-law, or whoever. Annas was the high priest, and Caiaphas, who we will hear about later on in the story, but he was the son-in-law. It was a corrupt thing. It was, it was a power thing. It sounds a lot like politics today, doesn't it? Some things just never change. People are incredibly consistent even 2,000 years later. Now, imagine their disappointment. The temple leaders thought, okay, we've arrested Peter and John. Whew, now we're rid of those guys. And yet, these guys won't shut up. They keep on keeping this movement alive. So the temple leaders, they had to put a stop to all of this once and for all. So we go to verse 7. They had Peter and John brought before them, and they began to question them. And they said, by what power or what name did you do this? So in front of the same people who just crucified his leader, who just murdered his leader, Peter began to preach again. He said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. To the people who crucified Jesus just a couple months before, Peter had the audacity to say, you crucified him, but God raised him. You failed. God won. But that wasn't it. At the end of his speech, Peter said something that really set him off. And something, he said something that, frankly, still kind of sets people off today. Here's what he said. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. He said, this is it. You don't have any other choices. It's not going to work with your gods of stone. It's not going to work with your other ancient practices. There is only one way to salvation, and it is through the name of Jesus. Now, in front of maybe a couple of dozen people, people who would decide whether he would live or die, think about it. Peter said, salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we could be saved. 
Think about it. This is Peter. Remember what Peter had just done a couple months ago? Peter had just denied his friend. He just denied his rabbi after he'd seen him arrested and beaten and crucified and killed and buried. But then, remember, he had breakfast with him on the beach a few days later. And once Peter saw that, Peter was all in. There was no more doubt. Jesus had said he was the Son of God, and then he proved it beyond all doubt. And Peter knew the truth. And the truth gave Peter all the boldness he would ever need. And about that moment, Luke wrote this. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, when they saw how, even though they knew very well Peter and John, that they could meet the exact same fate as Jesus. Peter and John weren't afraid to stand up to them. And the religious leaders sat up. They said, wow, these guys are bold. And they took note. Verse 13, we continue. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, in other words, these were just common folk. These are just fishermen, ordinary men. The leaders were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But... Since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. They weren't happy about it, but the facts were the facts. They saw this guy standing there. There was nothing that they could say about it. Well, then, they said to Peter and John and everybody in the room, they said, give us the room. You ever watch those shows when someone's in a conference and then they want to have a private talk and they go, give us the room, and everybody has to leave, everybody knows they have to leave? I've always wanted to do that. Like, I can't wait to do that one day. This, that could be really fun. Anyway, so they said, okay, guys, get out of here. Give us the room. Here's what they said. What are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign. Everyone saw the miracle. We can't deny it. Verse 17. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in his name. Okay, so they're going to threaten him. They couldn't deny what Peter and John were, were saying, but they, but they wanted to keep them quiet. They wanted to keep them from proclaiming Jesus all over the place. So we go to verse 18. So they called them in again. Okay, so they were done with their little sidebar meeting. And they called them in again. And they commanded, commanded them not to speak or not to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Then they threatened them a little bit more. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. So it looks really bad if the religious leaders following a miracle come along and punish the people who made the miracle happen, right? So that would have looked bad. The man was miraculously healed. He was over 40 years old. So what did they do? They cut Peter and John loose. And Peter and John left the room high-fiving each other and joking around. <laughs> Whoo, right? Well, it was close call. And then they wrote off the pages of history into the sunset. The end. Let's pray. No, that's not what happened. That is not what they did. They'd seen the resurrected Lord. You don't just give up once you see the resurrected Lord. So what did they do on their release? Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when all the believers had heard Peter and John's report, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. They didn't run away. They didn't bug out of town. 
they said, this was awesome. We got to tell our friends. We got to tell everybody. We got to pray and give thanks. But before we look at their prayer, here's something to consider. If you were in their situation, what would you have prayed? What would you pray? What would your prayer have sounded like? Or if you don't want to take it on personally, how do you think the prayers of most American Christians would sound? Well, here's what they prayed. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and everything in them. Your prayers begin like this, don't they? No, they don't, right? We don't pray like that. Very few Christians pray like that. Our prayers usually start with, dear God, thank you for this day, right? Admit it. I'll admit it. For sure. That's not really powerful, right? Hebrew prayers are certainly onto something. And you kind of already know about this. Think about the prayer that we pray when we take communion. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu Melech That means, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe. That sounds a lot more like that prayer, doesn't it? It's initially recognizing who God is, what God's done, the power that God has. Now, not only that, and this you might find interesting, you might not, but there's a prayer that I've been praying recently that I got from doing a little bit of research into the ultra-Orthodox practices, and it's a prayer that's intended to set your mind and your heart right as you begin each day. The prayer is called in Hebrew the Modet Ani, and it goes like this, and it'll, it'll sound weird to you, but I'll explain what it means. Modet Ani lafanecha melchai vechayam, sheherazarta benishmati bechemla rabah umuneteka. It sounds like a lot of gobbledygook. It's not tongues, it's Hebrew. It means this, I offer thanks to you, living and eternal king, for you have mercifully restored my soul within me your faithfulness is great. The Orthodox Jews believe that when you go to sleep, your soul travels. It's a little astral projection here or whatever, but there it is. And when God in his grace decides you're going to wake up the next morning, you get your soul back. And you're ready to start the day. So that says, thank you, God. I give thanks that you woke me up today and I'm ready to face the day. It's spoken the first thing in the morning while you're still lying in bed. And for me, it's been interesting because it kind of helps me get my day focused immediately on thanking God for the gift of life. At that moment, when you're praying a prayer like that, the past doesn't matter. The past is irrelevant. All that matters is the day that lies ahead with all its potential. Isn't that a cool way to start the day? Man, I love starting the day that way. And that's the way they prayed in Acts 4.24. You are the one true God. You are the head honcho. You're the one who made everything, the heavens and the earth and everything. You are the undisputed king. And then they prayed a psalm. Remember the psalms? Psalms come from the Old Testament. It's really God's songbook. Psalm 2 is what they prayed. It's what we call a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that indicates that there is a Messiah that the Hebrew people are waiting for. So it's a prayer to that Messiah. Now remember... King David lived about a thousand years before Jesus. A thousand years. So this is a psalm that was prayed by. It's a song that was written by King David. Here's what they prayed. We read it in Acts chapter 4, verse 25. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now, a little bit of background. The Jewish people in the first century in Jesus' day believed that 
Many times in their history, the prophets of old and the writers of old were referring to a day, were predicting a day where the Savior would come, where the Messiah, where Mashiach would come and set the world back on a path to God. So David wrote this psalm a thousand years before Jesus, looking forward to Jesus' arrival. And Peter and John quoted this psalm in their prayer because they realized that the thing that David had foretold had come true in their midst. They realized that God had fulfilled his promise by sending an anointed one, by sending a Messiah, by sending Jesus. Now think about this. When they prayed this prayer, proclaiming, God, you're in charge, and the kings of the earth and the rulers of the world plot against you, God, and plot against your son in vain, that's not what it looked like in their world. That's not what it looked like to them. It's not what it looked like to them by a long shot. To them, it actually looked like the rulers of the world, the powers of the world, killed the son. And it looked like because they killed the son that the father must be without power. And he can't help at all. And yet, that's not how they saw it. Why isn't it how they saw it? Because their faith allowed them to see things as they really were, not just as they appeared in their midst. They saw it for themselves. The rulers actually did band together against the Lord, against God's anointed one. They saw it. Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jewish leaders conspired against and murdered Jesus, their leader. And even though Herod and Pilate and the religious leaders were still threatening Jesus' followers, Jesus' followers remained absolutely certain that God was still on his throne, certain that the Lord was still in control, notwithstanding what was going on in the world around them, notwithstanding the mess that they saw. They knew that God was not surprised. And because they knew that God was in control and not surprised, they weren't worried at all about what was going on in their world. So after praying all of that, they offered up their request to God. Dear God, Lord, Father, Jesus, God, Lord, Father, Jesus, thank you for this day. That's what they said. Please bless me. Help me to have enough for retirement. Help me to lose 10 pounds for that wedding I'm going to next month. Let my son get into college. Let my daughter get that job. Watch out over my 401k. That's kind of an embarrassing way to pray, isn't it? We pray such small prayers. Maybe that's why we get such small results. Here's what they really prayed. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They prayed, Lord, we expect them to dislike us. Lord, we expect them to vilify us. We expect them to threaten us. So give us the ability and give us the desire to keep on speaking your word with even more boldness. Stretch out your hand, Lord, and heal and perform signs and wonders, not for us, but so that everyone will know the name of Jesus. That's what they prayed. And after they prayed, verse 31, the place where they were meeting was shaken. 
And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They didn't retreat. They reloaded. They didn't cower. They charged ahead. They didn't fret. They flourished. They were bold and they spoke boldly of Jesus to their lost and dying world. And the bold things they spoke didn't sound like anything. Didn't sound like anything that their community, that their culture was saying. Didn't sound anything like the loud and angry things that so many people claiming to represent Jesus today speak. Today we hear so many things from people who profess a faith in Jesus, but they come across just sounding like a jerk. They come across just sounding ticked off and angry and frightened and powerless and faithless and fatalistic and so confused. Though people claim to be remaining biblically faithful by quoting a verse out of context or misusing a directive in the Old Testament that was really indicated for Israel by trying to repurpose them for their own puny desires to control others and elevate themselves, they aren't speaking boldly of Jesus in any way. How do we know this? Because when first century believers went out and spoke the word of God boldly, they did so in a way that drew people in, that drew people into Jesus. When they spoke boldly of Jesus, their numbers increased, and they increased exponentially. And don't miss this. Their boldness had nothing to do with doctrine, And their boldness had nothing to do with obedience. And their boldness had nothing to do with behavior. And their boldness had nothing to do with custom or tradition. Their boldness was about the single event that sits at the core of everything we believe as Christians. And Luke tells us what it was. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to... The parables of Jesus? No. The teachings of Jesus? Mm -mm. The activities of Jesus? Nope. The, The popular sayings of Jesus? Not that either. What did they testify to? They testified to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Their confidence was not linked to some sudden elevation of societal influence or some change in the political culture. All of a sudden, the Christian people weren't on top of the heap and running the show. That's not what their confidence was linked to. It was linked to and rooted in the resurrection of Jesus, period. Because they believed that Jesus rose from the dead. They had no fear. They were fearless. And their fearlessness translated to selflessness. Because when you no longer fear loss, you become selfless. When you no longer fear loss, you become compassionate. When you no longer fear loss, you become generous. And it was the generosity and the compassion and the selflessness of those first century Christians that caused the pagan, fearful, selfish, hedonistic, amoral culture in which they lived to lean in and wonder, what are those Christians about? What are they doing? And do you know why we can fear not? Do you know why we can live with boldness? Do you know why we can be confident in our beliefs and our faith? It's not because our candidate got elected. 
And it's not because inflation went down. And it's not because our sexual ethics have been universally accepted and celebrated. It's not any of those things. The reason we can live without fear in spite of the mess in the world around us is because God raised Jesus from the dead. It is undeniable. Matthew, an eyewitness, told us about it. And Mark, who spoke with and was close to eyewitnesses, he told us about it. And Luke, who thoroughly investigated these things, he told us about it. And John, who was an eyewitness, he told us about it. And Peter, who was an eyewitness, he told us about it. And James, the brother of Jesus, told us about it. And Paul, who encountered the risen Jesus, told us about it. That's why we can believe with certainty that Jesus rose from the dead. And because Jesus lives today, we can face tomorrow. And because Jesus lives today, we need no longer live in fear of anything Because Jesus lives, we can be confident. Because Jesus lives, we can be bold. Because Jesus lives, we can be generous, we can be compassionate, we can be selfless, and we can be concerned about the needs of other people. Because Jesus lives, we can live lives that cause people to lean in and not run away. All of which brings me back to my original question. What story will be told about us? When, one day, someone tells the story about this generation of American Christians, what story will they tell? As our nation trembled in fear because of the things happening around the world and because of the things happening here in America, what will they say we did about it? Will they say that we acted just like the people around us? That we Christians look to government for our salvation? Will they say that just like the majority of people around us, that we Christians lashed out at the bad people online, on Facebook, on on Twitter, on Reddit, in the comment sections, scolding others, tut-tutting others, shaming others, vilifying the people who disagree with us or look at things differently? Will they say that we castigated those who don't think like we think, just like everyone else in the world does? Will they say that as the rhetoric got angrier, and the reactions got more extreme as the people took sides and as compassion waned and as the racial divide increased and got deeper and things got worse and worse, will they say that we Christians lost our faith and jumped right into the fight, employing the very same tactics as the lost people around us? Or will they say that we Christians were the only people in the world who seemed to have no fear? No fear. Will they say that we Christians were the only ones in the world who, even though we were up on everything, we weren't worried about anything at all? Will they say that we Christians were the most generous, loving, and compassionate people they know, and yet the most responsible people, the people that were beyond reproach? Will they say that we Christians... We're engaged and involved in our world like everyone else, but we refused to be bitter or frightened or divisive. Will they remember our integrity? Will they remember the consistency of our principles? Will they remember our refusal not to judge the lost? Will they remember us as the followers of Jesus? 
who kept on getting better, the worse the world seemed to be. Will they remember that? Even though some of us were Democrats, and some of us were Republicans, and some of us never really revealed where we stood politically, will they remember that the only thing we wanted to be known as were Christians? And will they say that the world was a better place because of our presence in it? What story will be told about us? Because, listen up, Hammock Street, we don't go to church. We are the church. And we're here only for a little while. You know the odds of dying, right? They're one out of one, okay? We don't, none of us get out alive. We're only here a little while, but while we tarry, we're called to be stewards of a faith in Jesus for our generation. And we get to set the pace and we get to set the tone for the next generation. So what story will be told about us? Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, since there, there are men and women from the past who paved the way, who paid with their blood so we could be here today, so we could worship in freedom. Because of that, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us throw off our fear. Let us throw off our lack of empathy and compassion. Let us throw off everything that scares us and causes us to back down and let us run with perseverance. The race set before us, the race set before our generation. Let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes not on the economy, not on Washington, not on Tallahassee, not on a political candidate, not on social media, not on news media, not on the culture, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author, the pioneer, and the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross for us, scorning its shame. Jesus knew it was coming. Jesus knew what he was going to expect. He knew what was going to happen. And he did it for us anyway and then sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that, and here's our takeaway for this series, here's the application, so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. So that we will not grow weary and lose heart. It is worth it, and it is working, because our Savior, who was tough as nails, said, follow me, for I have come to be the Savior of the world. Fear not. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the faithful people who came before. Thank you for the faithful people who ensured that our faith was passed on to our generation. Thank you for the faithful people across time and distance who paid with their lives to ensure that we had a text that we could read. Thank you for the faithful people who today suffer because they claim to be followers of Jesus. Heavenly Father, I pray that one day our story would be worth telling, that our version of Christianity would be worth living for, and that our version of Christianity would be worth dying for. And Father, I pray that our culture would see in us something so attractive, so different, and so amazingly compelling 
that they would come to know you too. So Heavenly Father, do your will through us and give us the courage to serve you with our lives. I pray that we would be bold, confident, and fearless because we have no reason in the world to be anything but. In Jesus' name, amen.